This is a Macquarie Group podcast. Hello and welcome to Macquarie's Perspectives podcast, where our diverse team of experts and invited special guests share their latest thinking on current and emerging topics. Hi, I'm Amanda Mitchell, Head of Corporate Affairs for Macquarie Asset Management. In this episode, we're discussing an annual fixture on the Macquarie Asset Management calendar, the release of our Outlook 22 report, where we share our perspectives on the key themes set to shape the investment landscape and performance of key asset classes in the year ahead, as well as looking at the emerging trends in global equity markets across fixed income and real assets more broadly. This year's report delves a little deeper into how the asset management sector is stepping up to play an increasingly important role in tackling climate change. We also look at how the COVID-19 pandemic continues to shape our world and discuss what the new normal might look like for investors and asset managers. To explore these topics in more detail, today I'm joined by Ben Way, Group Head of Macquarie Asset Management, and Daniel McCormack, who is Macquarie Asset Management Senior Economist. Welcome, Ben. Welcome, Dan. Thanks, Amanda. Hi, Amanda. Great to be with you. So, Ben, it's been a momentous couple of years And in your letter to investors, you talk about an emerging crisis of trust in today's economic and political system. That's either reflective of the the period of economic disruption we've been living through, or maybe something more profound. Can you talk us through what you mean by that? So I think what what the point we're really trying to make is we're in a, we've had a, a period of great stress in the world. We all know that to be the pandemic over the last two years, but there are lots of other stresses that existed before the pandemic and will continue beyond it. Things like um, the challenges we face around net zero, things like social inequality, things like economic inequality, but also just confidence in institutions, those sorts of things. So we know that that has led to um, some very terrible and and difficult times for people. And so as we come out of the pandemic, the question is, um, you know, how do we make sure that, you know, leaders in our community, people like ourselves, in an era of stakeholder capitalism, can both continue to do our core job, which is to deliver returns for investors, but also to have a more, um, a more positive impact in the broader communities. And I think, you know, I think the way we do that, I think, is to make sure that all our stakeholders, whether it's governments, whether it's investors, whether it's staff or as clients, feel that they're interacting with and partnering with, you know, um, businesses, asset managers that actually have trust at their centre, that they believe building enduring relationships, they believe in doing the right thing, and they also believe that they can do that while delivering the right sorts of returns from a financial point of view. And I think if that's the era we find ourselves in now, that there's more expected of business than ever before. We actually think that's a really good thing. We think that business and asset managers have a very profound and important role to play that, to play in making the world a better place. And so there should be higher expectations of you know, institutions and firms like ourselves. So I think, um, you know, we're, we're, as we write in the letter, we're very, you know, we're doggedly optimistic about the world and the world being able to you know, confront these challenges and fix them. But I think we need to start with recognising them and then work out, you know, as commu- as communities and as as you know, leaders and participants in those communities, how we can continue to work together to fix them. And so, you know, I think that's the opportunity. But certainly, you know, we've had a period of disruption. There's no doubt about that. And it will take a while for the for the world to to come out of that and deal with it. 
Um, and as we know, we also have longer term challenges like the environment that we just need to get right. I guess um, building on that, that theme of disruption, Dan, you in the report, you talk about the world economy having lived through one macroeconomic regime since the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. Perhaps you could talk a little bit about that. Um, and you also mentioned that COVID-19, although maybe not entirely responsible, may be the event that changes that regime. Could you talk about that as well? What I mean is that it's a period during which the same big megatrends, so globalisation and the technology revolution in this case, have been driving outcomes for markets and economies. And, and those megatrends have all been pushing in broadly the same direction. But put slightly differently, perhaps, it's, you know, it's a period where a, a deep understanding of those megatrends, the, the scale and nature of their impact, would have got you a long way to understanding and, and predicting medium-term outcomes. So I do think, though, that that type of world, which was one of hyper-globalisation and it was a very disinflationary world, I think that world has been changing for a while now. In, in part, this is due to what's going on with China. Um, there are some increased geopolitical tensions around China, but also, and importantly, after 20 years of being in the World Trade Organisation and 20 years of rapid growth, China just has less spare capacity now than it did previously. So it has less scope to be the disinflationary impulse that it has been for so long now. A second factor I think that is important, and Ben touched a little bit on this in his opening answer, is that the political economy dynamic in the West is changing. Now, there are quite a few implications that flow from this, but you know, one example is that there's been a real shift in preference, I think, to bigger rather than smaller government. And look, this may well be desirable from a social and political perspective. That's for each individual to judge. But it does have economic consequences and, and, and big government you know, tends to crown out the more dynamic private sector to a degree. It does tend to slow productivity to a degree. And so at the margin, it tends to put a little bit of upward pressure on inflation. And I think the role that COVID, so, so I think these, these trends have been shifting and changing for a while now. COVID has probably accelerated that change a bit. It's brought it forward. It's, it's sped it up. Well, I think the interesting thing too about Dad's point there in acceleration is COVID has accelerated, I think, some trends that have been existing for some periods of time. And it's also, I think, helped shine a light on things that aren't right in the world. But there's also been some positive acceleration. So I would say, you know, things like digitalization and what that's meant from, you know, consumer accessibility and economic inclusion, they're real positive accelerations. And the sort of investment that we've seen and the job creation that's come into those sectors has been good. So I don't think, you know, I think the point we're trying to make is that the world has challenges. People are incredibly creative and adaptable and we'll be able to fix those challenges. We do have to acknowledge them. But along with those challenges, there have also been, I think, really positive developments. Despite some of the big changes or big challenges facing governments and economies globally, what is very positive about the outlook for global growth. In terms of economic policy, Dan, do you think that we're now in the transition from treating COVID-19 as, as an endemic rather than pandemic? I very much hope so, Amanda. I, I'm by no means an expert on viruses, but... As I understand, you know, they do tend to evolve to lower lethality over time, right? Lower lethality and higher transmissibility. I mean, this, this sort of makes logical sense, right? Because if you had a virus that 
killed its host immediately upon impact, you know, that, that virus just wouldn't last very long. Um, and, and this is broadly what we've seen so far, right? Omicron, the latest variant, is much more transmissible than the earlier ones, but it's also uh, much less lethal. Now, there is a random component to these mutations, so it doesn't mean that necessarily the next variant will be less lethal, but I think so long as it's not materially more lethal, we should be okay. And, and one reason I say that is I think the other thing that has gone on in the last year or so is that our reaction function to the virus has changed in that we're now a lot more reluctant to go into lockdowns or put in place restrictive measures than we were earlier in the crisis. And it's these lockdowns and restrictive measures that really matter from an economic impact point of view. So if you combine those two things, you know, the odds that the next variant won't be materially more lethal is pretty high. With our change reaction function, I'm optimistic that we're not just past the worst, but that, in fact, the great bulk of the economic damage from COVID, call it 95, 98% of it, is actually behind us and not ahead of us. Now, that said, of course, I'm, I'm keeping my fingers crossed at the same time. Um, but, you know, I do believe that that is the case. One, one thing that apparent throughout the, the past two years of living through COVID, the focus on climate change hasn't, thankfully, hasn't dissipated. And Ben, as we often talk about, it's, it is without a doubt the biggest challenge of our time. And the level of global investment needed to achieve net zero is unprecedented. How important a role is the asset management sector playing in, in, in tackling climate change in terms of both mobilising capital and, and tackling some of the highest emitting industries? And where do you think we need to be doing better? So I, I think I hope I could say three things to that, and I think it's a really interesting question. Um, the first one is I think it's great that actually, if anything, the last two years has seen um, uh, climate change, I think, and the need to address it, particularly around net zero, be embraced by many different parts of, of society, including by business. So I think you know, actually the last two years has seen a real prioritisation of We've got to get this right. We've got to move quickly. This is a very important time frame we find ourselves in in addressing the challenges we face around emissions and the like. So I think that's been. A, I think that's a very good development. And I think COP twenty six was a good example where business, including asset managers, played a much more prominent role as we should to help support many other stakeholders and other groups from society. So I think that's been good. Um, I think. The second thing I'd say is look, asset managers have a critical role to play and let's just, you know, reflect on ourselves, you know, as a global owner of infrastructure, you know, that's, the, that's a sector that is the biggest emitter of emissions. So if we don't get that right and we don't drive change, then who will? So it really starts, it starts with us. The good news is, you know, across you know, our 160 portfolio companies, but also clearly at other asset managers, there's great work going on in terms of putting in zero um, um, net zero business plans, funding them, and then starting the hard work. And it is hard work. I think we have to acknowledge that. You know, it, it's much easier to make announcements and to um, and to have targets than it actually is to achieve them. And so the hard work's going on now. And if you just think about that, you know, we've got 160 portfolio companies. That's 160 business plans, 160 capital plans. That's, you know, a change program, a culture program. It's getting people aligned around what we're doing. And then it's about tracking, um, 
measuring and reporting. And we need to be transparent and authentic about this. So I think we've got a huge role to play. And I think particularly in some of the industries that, you know, do have carbon-based um, uh, businesses, there's a huge opportunity, right? If you think about, say, gas businesses, to invest in um, um, getting them to evolve to hydrogen businesses. We won't get there in a year, but over time we can replace gas with hydrogen and they can continue to do what they do today, which is to distribute gases or hydrogen you know, around communities, which is important for business and important for um, uh, important for the heatings of homes, those sorts of things, but we can do it in a much cleaner way. So there will be a transition period, but I think you know, there is a huge opportunity here to play an active role in that. I think what we need to do better, I think what we need to do better is we need to get on with the effort. Right? We need to see change. And I think if we, don't, um, if we don't go beyond sort of just announcements and ambition and move to that period of action, then we will lose credibility and that will set back um, the effort to get to net zero. So I think it's really important that we're now backing up our words, backing up our ambition and getting down to, to the hard work of transitioning our portfolio companies to be truly net zero over the coming years. Picking up on where we see the energy transition, investment in the energy transition accelerating this year, Dan, what are some of the opportunities in the market at the moment? I think one of the really tectonic changes uh, in the energy transition space in recent years is that you know, wind and solar have become cheaper than virtually you know, all other forms of energy. You know, that was definitely not the case 10 years ago when they still required sort of sizable government subsidies. And I think what this has proven to governments is that if you support a technology and facilitate it to get to scale, support it getting to scale, it can deliver, you know, very cost-effective solutions, in this case, power and energy. And I think governments are now taking that learning and they're applying it to other areas of the energy transition. So areas like energy storage, carbon capture, and also clean, i.e. green hydrogen. And I think they, they know that if they back these and, again, help them get the scale, these can make a, a critical and cost-effective contribution to the energy transition. So, you know, I, th there's lots of areas of opportunity here, but that's certainly, that, that's certainly three that I would flag. Yeah, I think, you know, I think one of the really good news stories is just the amount of interest from um, investors around the world wanting to focus their capital on being part of the answer and looking at energy transition. I think that's, I think that's a really big development, to be honest, of the last two years. And um, I think we're, you know, we're seeing interest in all different parts of the opportunity set. So whether it be hydrogen, we've talked a bit about that already today, um, but it's also around batteries, it's around carbon capture, and it's around other technologies that need scale and commercialization. So I think you know, I think the really good news is, is that people want to be aligned with investing um, that in line with investing in areas that are going to be part of the solution. And so, you know, I think what that means is in a lot of ways, we've sort of got, we've got two opportunity sets here. We need to take the mainstream renewable technologies today, like solar and wind, and continue to develop those and continue to uh, install those at greater scale. But they're proven technologies, and that's great. And then there's a whole range of other technologies, some of which we're actually going to need for you know our own portfolios um, to be commercialised to allow us to transition. So there will be some learning while we're doing, but there's also a much bigger uh, investor interest in that area than ever before. And I think 
you know, that's because people recognize the need for that capital. So they want to be part of change. They want to catalyze that change. But I also think it comes back to the really great point you made before, which is, yes, um, getting to net zero is our you know, existential challenge. No one disagrees with that. At the same time, it's also our biggest investment opportunity globally. And so I think people see that, the fact that let's be part of that solution. Let's match that capital, that opportunity. If we do that, like we've done through many times in history before, that, that period of entrepreneurialism and innovation should lead to you know, really great outcomes. And we've proven many times before that when faced with these types of challenges, um, you know, we as a group of people can solve them. And I think you know, we're, start, we're starting to see more confidence in that occurring. We're certainly starting to see a lot more support and interest. So a final question for Ben. In the report, we talk about the many ways in which COVID has impacted our lives, including the way we live and work. And I guess the big question everyone's asking is whether, you know, how permanent these changes are going to be. Um, and I know this is a topic that, that you get many questions about, both from our own team as well as, as well as our clients and investors. Can you share with us your thoughts on how attitudes to work are changing and, and what are some of the benefits and challenges to our new way of hybrid working? First answer to that is, I think hybrid working is great. You know, we've had a culture and a focus on hybrid working way before 2020. And I think it's a modern way of working, right? We want people to have control of their diaries. We want them to work in a way that is flexible and productive and allows them to balance their work life with their personal life. Um, and I think, if anything, we've proven over the last two years just how unbelievably adaptable and resilient people are and actually how productive they can be. And, you know, we've never been busier, we've never raised more capital, we've never deployed more capital, we've never um, been able to achieve such great outcomes for our clients before and for our communities, and we've done it during a period where, you know, people have often been in lockdown. So I think hybrid working is here to stay, and I think that's a really good thing and we should embrace it. Um, I don't think there are actually that many challenges from hybrid working because if you have a culture that's positive and strong, people will still want to be together, you know, and I think that's will be a differentiator in terms of um, the proposition you have for recruiting and retaining people in the years to come, which is if you have a strong culture and you give people freedom and trust, they'll see the benefit of coming together. And there are enormous benefits in spending time together, particularly people that are you know, earlier in their career where they're doing that sort of apprenticeship. And so there's structured learning and education in the workplace, but there's also learning by osmosis and being able to ask questions and build networks and relationships. And I think, you know, what we're trying to do is foster um, a high-performance culture. We think a high-performance culture embraces hybrid working, but that high-performance culture also means that people do want to still come in and spend a lot of time together. And it's, you know, up to us to make sure that we create the right work environments with the right technologies where people can use that to be even more collaborative and more innovative than they have from ever before. So it is an often-asked question. Um, we have taken, you know, an approach which is about, you know, each individual and each, you know, small team making a choice and, and working out what works best for them. And for us, it's worked very well. And I think, um, you know, we can, I think we can, you know, I think again, um, you know, it's a, it's a great model and, you know, ultimately, you know, you'll be successful because of the right culture, not how many days or hours you, you require people to be in the office. I think that's all we have time for today. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. Thanks very much, Amanda.
Thanks for listening to this episode of Perspectives. You can access the full Outlook 2022 report, as well as our latest thinking on a full range of topics at macquarie.com forward slash perspectives. Thank you for listening to this Macquarie Group podcast. All episode disclaimers can be found in the show notes.